Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we peruse this week's tech news. Today, we're covering new SASE capabilities for Fortinet, new 800 gig Cisco switches, sustainability efforts at the Open Compute Project, disaggregated Wi-Fi, and more. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash network break and get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code network break at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash network break and use that promo code at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And stick around for our Tech Bytes podcast. We're talking with sponsor Open Gear about how to use out-of-band management for daily networking tasks and not just when there's a problem or crisis. Uh, last but not least, if you like Network Break, we've got a bunch of other podcasts in our network, including Day2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, Kubernetes Unpacked, and Heavy Strategy. And, and Greg, your latest Heavy Strategy episode with Jonah gets into the conflicting pulls between hustle culture and quiet quitting. Yeah, it was a really fun show to record, by the way, because we really went at each other because we really came from, <laughs> our, like we always take an opposing position and argue um, or debate, if you want to call it that. Um, mm -hmm. But this one particularly seemed to sort of get us both going and, and whatever. But of course, quite quitting is this idea that people are just working to just, you know, to what what they're being asked to do. and. They're not being paid not enough. Anymore. To They're not giving one hundred and ten percent. That's They're right. You know, 100. whereas hustle culture says you got to get in there and give one hundred and twenty percent and commit your life to being, you know, to working and all that. And um, the only thing is that after I'd done this episode, I came up. There's also a, a, a reverse view on quiet quitting, which is quiet firing, and that's where the company <laughs> is actually trying to fire you by just giving you more and more work, but not paying you any more money. Um, ah. So I wish I had a thought of that. So yeah. I, hmm. Another thing I want to point out today, Drew, is that today is Network Break 404. And, uh, 404. Yeah. We all know what that means. That means that we've been doing this for about eight years because <laughs> we publish about 50 episodes a year, give or take. I'd just like to point out the sheer pointlessness and <laughs> the persistence that we've managed to display uh, and the temptation to actually just publish an episode that just said, not found or something. <laughs> it, was pretty, it was pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> the, the temptation is there. We'll see what happens when I put this out. But yes, 404. We've, we've been doing this a long time. So I, I yeah. think you and Ethan always said too stupid to quit. So I guess uh, that applies here as well. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So just interesting to think we've been doing this for eight years and uh, we're still here. And we're very grateful to everybody in the audience for supporting us and, and whatever. And 404 seems like a very apt number to, to sort of take stock and say, yeah, you know. <laughs> For an IT news show, it is a good number. Yeah, there's enough self-congratulations. Let's get in. All right, we're going to start with some FU. Recently, we talked about uh, the government putting talking about uh, having a labeling system for IoT security, and I had mentioned that there wasn't a lot of detail. Steve Palooka wrote in to say that the background on IoT announcements you mentioned in Network Break does have details behind it. Uh, the White House had asked NIST, the National Institute for Energy and Technology in the U.S., to create an IoT review for consumer labeling, and he gives us a link, which we will have in the show notes, so that there is, I guess, more background to this IoT security labeling than I had uh, understood. Okay, so Steve is correct. I was wrong. You know, mayor culpa and all that sort of stuff. Um, NIST has been undertaking a process that started in May 2021, as he points out, <laughs> uh, and gave us a source to point out. So I was able to go and review that documentation. What's clear to me is that it's early. It's got a lot of, basically so far, all of it's managed to do is define the words IoT and various criteria that we should be measuring and mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. like that. It's, it's sort of that highlight of a government process that moves slowly but inexorably towards a destination. So everybody mm -hmm. gets to sort of stand up and complain if they don't like it, but it'll still happen regardless of what everybody wants. But you get a chance to maybe add something in there or not. So 
I don't believe they've actually sort of come up with an IoT safe. Like what I was imagining is that there's like a categorization mark, like Wi-Fi 45667 type thing. Mm-hmm. And IoT would come with a Wi-Fi, you know, with a stamp saying high meets high security standards or low security standards. Sort of like green, yellow, red, I'm thinking like stoplights. So it's safe, not so much. And ooh, be careful. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, so far all they've managed to do is device must have a clearly marked URL on it and a code, you know, the the scanning code on it so that people mm-hmm. can find out where it comes from and get support or whatever for it. But that's about it. It's uh, And there's some definitions around words and things. I'd like to think I see something much more concrete come out of this and say like low security is, you know, suck it and see. Sure, <laughs> sure, <You know>? yeah. <laughs> Play with it and find out. <laughs> right. And a high security says, you know, this is, comes from a supplier which has been vetted to meet certain standards, the there is regular code updates available for this and so on and so forth. So the thing is, you know, I don't mind it taking a while if they are actually being very careful and even doing things like starting with a basic definition of IoT, because even though it sounds sort of bureaucratic and, you know, kind mm-hmm. of irritating and boring, those that kind of groundwork has to be laid. So it does sound like they're taking it seriously, which yeah. in fact sort of builds my confidence that this labeling system may be useful. Well, potentially NIST is not a body that's usually take is not very good at standards. Like if you ever read their firewall standard, you'd be fairly horrified about what it was. <laughs> and uh, literally that was defined so that tenders could say what is a firewall on tenders as far as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not hopeful that it would get to that sort of level. But that's, to my mind, if the US, this is only the US government, by the way, there's plenty of other governments around the world who I uh, would think would be looking at this and thinking if this works out, we would copy that. You mm-hmm. know, We do need a consistent approach across the West. We can forget China and various other political blocks at this point. Um, but it's, it, you know, we do really need, a, you know, a sort of thing where this device complies with a, you know, low, medium, high security. And, you know, there is a time when you might want low security stuff. If you're just going to put it on your garden shed and you want to know if the door's open or not, then why bother with the high tech stuff sort of thing? So Right, right. Mm. But if, if you're it's an enterprise in your baby's room to- or whatever, or you're an enterprise, yeah, that yeah, there's definitely use cases for not caring and being a little more cautious. Yeah, I think so. And helping customers to understand that there's a level of, you know, you're not just buying a left-handed screwdriver or a right-handed screwdriver, you're actually buying something that's got more behind it is probably the goal. Anyway, thanks very much to Steve for sending it in, uh, sending us the follow-up at packetpushes.net slash fu and telling us what we got wrong, and hopefully we've corrected it, then maybe you're the type of person who could go and change the U.S. government's engagement into something more reasonable. Yeah, we'll have that link that Steve gave us in the show notes if you want to check out uh, what NIST has been up to. And again, packetpushes.net slash fu for all the mistakes we make today. <laughs> As usual. Right, let's, let's get into some news. Uh, Fortinet has announced new capabilities in its SASE offering, including what it calls cloud SD-WAN and a dual-mode CASB. So give me a second to lay this out here. Uh, to me, Cloud SD-WAN sounds more like internet breakout. Here's how it works. A remote user with a Fortinet client on their device has their traffic directed to the nearest Fortinet POP. Then that POP can split the traffic, sending some traffic onto the customer's existing SD-WAN mesh and other traffic out to the internet. So not really SD-WAN, but it means that remote users can access an existing SD-WAN mesh as long as they have the client, even if they aren't in a branch or remote location with the SD-WAN gateway. Yeah, so that's remote access. So this is one of the more unique things that Fortinet does is that they unify the remote VPN or the remote access capability into the SD-WAN platform. So you're not going, mm-hmm. you know, remote access over here and SD-WAN over here and never the twain shall meet. 
Uh, because if you've got an SD-WAN and you're doing some sort of CASB, you know, where you're sending it off for logging and inspection and so forth, you want to have your remote access users going to the same tool. You right. don't want them, you know, have the SD-WAN going off to, say, Cisco for scanning, but the remote access goes off to Zscaler or something like that or, or Ariarca or whatever. So unifying it together sounds like a good idea for me because you've got one set of policies, reduces the operational cost. Does that make does that yeah, match I think with what you really, read? What they're really talking about is that if you've already if you've got Fortinet SD WAN and you've done the hard work of taking that those IPsec overlays and building mm -hmm. it into a mesh network and you know where your traffic is going to go when traffic hits a particular gateway and you want it to go to you know destination X, you can now integrate that into essentially the Fortinet POP so that that end user using yeah. the remote client will just hit that SD WAN network that you've already built as opposed yes. to having to figure yeah. out a new way to get that user to destination X. That's right. So it goes into the SD WAN and becomes a part of, just becomes a, a node on just the SDN, SD WAN. Slots right into that mesh you've already built. Yeah. Except that it's hitting a POP, not an SD WAN gateway. That's right. And then that POP then applies all the policies, access controls, identification, yes. and so forth. Yep. Some of it will be on the client, I'm sure. But yeah. Uh, the other thing is they've announced a dual mode CASB. So they're saying there's an inline CASB that basically allows or denies your access to SaaS app. So pretty straightforward. And then they have the other part of this is a CASB with deeper integration, meaning you can create more fine grained policies to control behaviors within, say, a SaaS app. So for instance, you can go to Office 365 and you can upload a document, but you're not allowed to download a document. Uh, and they say that this uh, API integration with specific uh, SaaS applications allows you to get more fine-grained access control. For the basic allow or block CASB, they've got about 5,000 uh, uh, sites you can work with. For the integrated API CASB, it's about 20 SaaS apps that they have that. That'll be interesting because if you're trying to work with a third party who's sending you documents and you want to get them connected to your WAN or you want to do remote access and then you, but you don't want them connected to your SD-WAN, you kind of, this feels like it follows on from our previous discussion. It becomes a sales objection because you're saying, well, it's remote access, but I also want to give remote access to third parties. Mm, I think it's more about, you know, for some reason I am very particular about what I, I you know, I don't want uh, sensitive information to be removed from, you know, this Office 365 document store. So I'm not going to allow this user under these circumstances to download docs, but they can still, you know, upload stuff. Yeah. It, it lets much. you get really, really, really granular, finicky with your policies. Yeah. I imagine that's a license upgrade because you're going from a shallow sort of deep packet <laughs> inspection. Yes. Or a shallow <laughs> firewalling to a much more complicated, harder to support and harder to create, I imagine. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that gets tricky. And again, mm -hmm. uh, if you want that deep API integration, Fortinet currently supports about 20 SaaS apps, including Office 365, GitHub, mm -hmm. Dropbox Business and others. And again, for the, the basic allow or deny to uh, a SaaS site, that's about 5,000 yep. sites. Yeah. Uh, one other thing about Fortinet that I want to call out when I was uh, getting this briefing is that Fortinet SASE offering does not work with third-party SD-WAN products. So if you're on say, you know, an Aruba SD-WAN or a Palo Alto SD-WAN, but you wanted to use the Fortinet SASE, you could not send SD-WAN traffic into their SASE to get that security inspection. They're saying, if you want our SASE, you got to be on our SD-WAN. I'm two minds about that. Um, we talk a lot about how there's too many security products and a lot of the products are just features. And I think we're reaching the point where, you know, the cloud scanning and, and logging and intrusion detection and, and content scanning is a feature, not a product anymore. Uh -huh. Does that make sense? Uh -huh. And it does. you don't want to manage it as separately. You don't want to have, you know, vendor A for the SD-WAN, vendor B for the for the CAS B and vendor C for the remote access. 
now they're all just one product, or they should be one product and with a unified management console. I guess Fortinet is one of the few companies that has actually got one of everything, right? They've got the firewall, they've got the cybersecurity tools, they've got threat intelligence. So on one hand, it just simplifies everything. You buy your hardware and everything from one vendor, you use their CASB, their threat intelligence models. We talked in a recent show with them about their deception technologies, their honeypots and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And as long as the management plane for all that's unified, that would mean it's just all of these things aren't, products they're just features of a product which is right. radically different to most companies like look at cisco they want to sell you one of everything they've got products and in, in all over the place that you have to sort of weld together to try and bring it all together and aruba is still building some parts of its portfolio you know the acquisition of silver peak and now they've got to add some security functions to it so they'll use a third party i i think that in the ultimately the third party model will go away as security has to become unified to make it workable yeah, I, I'm also of two minds about this. I, Fortinet, when I asked them, I was like, why would you do that? They said they're really focused on a seamless customer integration, seamless customer experience, and they think they can do that better if their mm-hmm. SD-WAN ties into their SASE. Uh, you can still, you know, if you're just, you can still have your uh, customer clients using the Fortinet agent on an endpoint device access mm-hmm. the SASE if they're not going through an SD-WAN gateway. But if if you're running a third-party SD-WAN, you can't use the SASE service from that SD-WAN. Um, I, I think it limits the potential adoption for Fortinet SASE. If you're a customer mm. who's already got a third-party SDN, you don't want to ditch it. But I guess I also sort of, you know, can see the, the you know, Fortinet's it, position that, yeah, we want a seamless experience. And so yeah. we're going to stick to this. I think the other thing here is that Fortinet didn't buy it. So it wasn't a standalone product. Most of the other SD-WAN vendors acquired it. They didn't build it. They acquired yep. a small startup or a modest-sized startup that had the that CASB technology and then strapped it onto their SD-WAN. So that, therefore, they already had a bunch of customers. So it made sense to keep running that, whereas 40 people developed this 40 product from the 40 start <laughs> to the 40 delivery, you know. <laughs> so, yes, they did. And cheap they, they shot they did, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. We, we, we love their branding. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a bold approach. We'll see if they stick to their guns or if enough customers mm. on third-party SD-WANs are like, hey, what's up here? Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see, but uh, yeah, we'll keep you posted. All right, moving on. Uh, Cisco's announced two new 800-gig switches, the Nexus 9232E and the Cisco 8111. Both use Cisco's homegrown Silicon One ASIC and promise 25.6 terabits per second throughput. You can get 32 800-gig ports or 64 400-gig ports on both of these boxes. Yeah, not much to write home here. Yeah, I think the Silicon One is the same ASIC. There's no mention of this technology being a new ASIC or a respin. But what they've done here is they're selling this directly to the cloud companies. And it's uh, although sometimes it runs Nexus OS, I think mostly it's being used um, to run on Sonic or whatever it is, the in-house operating system that the clouds have. So the story here is that Cisco's actually been somewhat successful, not hugely successful according to what I've been reading, to actually sell Cisco-branded switches as white box, you know, like not necessarily with Cisco's OS. Cisco does want to be able to sell its NXOS and refers to it in the press release here, but my understanding is that most customers are actually buying the Cisco 8000 with the open source or third-party NOS, but Cisco's also announced the 9232E, which runs NXOS for customers who want that type of capability or if they want to do ACI, but these are very much targeted at cloud deployments, not data center deployments. 
That's the take I got. The particularly the eighty one eleven switch can support that third party NOS. Uh, Cisco doesn't specify which ones, but I would guess Sonic and Facebook's NOS are both on that list. Also notable, they use uh, QSFP DD eight hundred form factor optical transceivers, which are quite unique. They're very specific to the eight hundred gig, which lets you link up to two kilometers straight out of the box. So for some customers, you might actually be able to have two data centers just linked directly out of a switch without having mm-hmm. to have some sort of extender in the middle. Uh, one thing that did jump out at me is how much Cisco is touting power efficiency. Um, they say they're getting these gains because they're putting more capacity into a single device. So for example, with the 8111, Cisco says you get 70% reduction in power and 83% reduction in space and the number of fans compared to having to run multiple 12.8 terabit devices to get that same number of 400 gig ports. Okay, so yeah, you can see that there. But they also uh, specifically called out uh, the savings in carbon, saying, quote, you can save nearly 9,000 kilograms of CO2 emissions per year, uh, according to its own studies. I think that's a signal that uh, organizations, particularly the hyperscalers, are maybe thinking they're going to be directly on the hook someday for their actual carbon output. And so for Cisco saying, here's our carbon footprint, that's a that's a new buying signal to me. Uh, there's actually an article later on where we'll talk more about this, about, but the Open Compute Foundation was talking about power efficiency. They had a big conference this week and lots of people, apparently data centers used 1% to 1.5% of worldwide power in 2020. And mm-hmm. on the current projections, data centers could consume from 3 to 13% of worldwide power generation by 2030. Wow. So if you think about it in that context, you know, there's just not that much power generation available to run an infinite number of data centers. I think that's one factor. (laughs) Of course, it's never just one thing. Cisco has a big thing about ESG, you know, it's environmental and sustainability goals. It's made a big part about it's going to participate in environmental, it's social, it's trustable, it's worthy. I think it's a step in that direction. But I think also just the sheer cost of power has become a big deal for a lot of these companies even if they can get power to run data centers. We've talked before about various places like there's just nowhere you can put a data center in West London. There's no power available. Right. Ireland's got the same thing. They canned 20 data centers. We talked about this eight to 10 weeks ago. They've canned all the data center projects coming up because there's just not enough power available. So I think you're going to see a much bigger focus on it, not just because the cost of power and the cost of electricity is rising. In time, that might solve itself. But I think there's just not enough power around and so in this case, they're saving power not by having a power-efficient chip or a power-efficient architecture. It's just now that you're using 800 gig, you can collapse a, you know, a chassis into one switch. Right, Okay. Yes. Now I don't have eight line cards with you know, four 800 gig ports or 10 eight, eight 800, 800 gig ports on a single blade. Now it's all just in one switch. Not exactly a power saving, just a standard <laughs> increment, you know, step changes, yes. density increases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, what again, what jumped out to me is the fact, I, this is the first time I've seen a switch vendor, specifically mm. the carbon output from a device. Um, yeah. The first time I've seen it here, I think that's interesting. I expect we'll see more of it, particularly for that hyperscale target where and maybe in Europe uh, first they're <laughs> going to get tagged for the amount of carbon output. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's complicated. Uh, I think Cisco will measure it because that's something that it can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're, you know, AWS running a data center, how many mar- how many pounds of carbon do you save by introducing <laughs> a new switch? Well, that's a that's a different question. So yeah, all numbers, particularly from vendors, need to be taken with a grain of salt. But the fact that mm-hmm. they're putting it into a public press release is, to me, a, a little bit of a not quite a sea change, but a, another signal that carbon mm-hmm. is going to be a measurement going forward. I'm going to come down on the virtual signaling part. 
Look at us. We're doing some ESG. <laughs> we measured carbon. Right. Well, that's the thing about ESGs. You can always yes. do virtue signaling with it, whether or not it has that output. But I, I, I'm going to try to cling to a little bit of hope that this is a good sign. <laughs> Let's go with that then. All right. I'm on your side right. then. <laughs> okay. All right. Links in the show notes. If you want more, we'll move on. Uh, RSA has announced Mobile Lock. This is an app that can detect threats on mobile phones and then prevent authentication to business apps. The goal of Mobile Lock is to provide a strong de degree of protection for companies that use mobile devices to authenticate to business apps, but without having a full bore mobile device management product that could creep out end users because they're worried about corporate surveillance. Yeah, I tried reading their marketing documentation. I was uh, unimpressed. So maybe I'm going to rely. You're the one who did the briefing here, because to me it looks like um, it looks like a Microsoft thing. They've got a, an identification app that you can put on your phone, and this app monitors that app for vulnerabilities. Is that it? Well, it works in conjunction with uh, RSA's ID+. This is a cloud-based identity and access management service, and mm -hmm. the software on the device monitors the device posture, looks for specific behavior, looks for threat signatures, and any attempts to modify the OS. If it sees that happening on the smartphone, it will stop the user from accessing corporate applications. That is, it will disable the remote authentication capabilities of ID+. Plus to lock you out of your business apps. The phone still works. You can still send text messages, make calls, surf the web. You just can't use your business apps. And the goal is to keep malware that might be on a phone from spreading into the corporate environment. And this feels like, you know, Microsoft Defender protecting the vulnerabilities in Microsoft Office and Microsoft Windows. Kind of like that, but it's for every app you have and your corporate network as well. Yeah, it's not just for Microsoft. Yeah. Yeah, it just I was reading it and it just sort of said, uh, we detect critical threats to the device and restrict the ability, user's ability to authenticate until the issue is resolved, which sort of felt like a pretty narrow focus. Like, does everything else still work, but they just can't use the RSA ID plus yes. app to log in? Yeah. Yes, everything else still works on the phone. You just can't access your business app. So when I had the briefing, they said, you know, financial services clients, they their uh, employees want to use their own devices to do work but they also need to secure those devices, but people are uncomfortable with the full mobile device management because they don't want the business seeing, you know, what, what apps they're using, what, how they're surfing the web, that kind of thing. Mm. So this is kind of a half a loaf is better than none in that I can lock out the device from my corporate network if I think there's a problem and not worry about whatever else the user is doing. Yeah. I still feel like it's saying, you know, we've put a security guard outside your house to keep you safe, but we made the house unsafe to live in. <laughs> Right. Well, that's, that's it's not RSA's of, fault that there's malware out there. So, you know, there's... Uh, <laughs> you know, you could always write your app so that it's actually safe, you know. But I mean, it just feels... It, it doesn't explain it very well. If there's a feature in there, I'm not seeing it in the marketing documentation. So, I, Carl, I'll need a touch cynical then. Sure, I agree. They didn't... Yeah, their, their press releases are hard to sort through. My take is that it's instead of... With users uncomfortable about full MDM on, a, on their own personal device, having their business putting controls on their device. This is saying, at the very least, we can make sure you're not going to log into our network with malware and infect the rest of the company. Yeah. So fair enough. That And, you know, if it does yeah. that, that's something. But you're all, most people already have MDMs or something else out there that's going to be doing this. I'm not entirely convinced. And they also don't make any commentary. Like, we talked recently about Collide, which did something similar, would go out and check on devices and then report it into Slack. Mm -hmm. and it, so is this product going to be integrated into a help desk system so that some sort of activity is going to happen? It's not enough to release. Mm. It can also alert your IT admin that 
you've been locked out. Um, it yeah. doesn't have any way to remediate the phone. You'll have to do something else to get the remediation of the phone. Uh, so mm. there's that, but yes, it will at least alert. And it's also, you know, putting all these security logs into whatever seam you have. Yeah. I kind of want to see it log a case with ServiceNow or put an alert into a special channel in Slack. It's not yeah. enough to just send an alert to an administration console, you know, a special RSA app on a, you know, that's standalone and whatever. Yes. That to me is, there's got to be some sort of sideways integration these days. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they could definitely do more with this, uh, particularly mm. on the remediation front, because me being locked out of my phone and no way to fix it if I'm an end user kind of leaves me hanging. But, you know, that's yeah. something. On the other know. hand, first time we've heard of RSA for a while, I didn't even know they were doing identity management. <laughs> still. <true>. So. <laughs> so well done there. Yeah. Uh, links <laughs> in the show notes if you want to go try to parse through it yourself. Uh, Quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IT Pro TV. They're an online technical training to help you start or grow your IT career. For instance, cybersecurity, just speaking of RSA, more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles. You can become a CyberSec Pro with online training from IT Pro TV. If security is not your thing, that's no problem. IT Pro TV has you covered with all sorts of courses from across the IT spectrum, from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. There's more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. Instructors are live every day with shows going studio to web in just 24 hours. Courses are listed by category, certification, and job role, so you can find what you're looking for. You can also learn from where you're at on whatever platform you like to consume media with, so you can stream your courses live and on-demand from Roku, Apple TV, PC, or IT Pro TV's iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak and get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout, itpro.tv slash networkbreak. Use that promo code and you'll save 30% off all plans. Back to the news, uh, disaggregation and white boxes coming to the Wi-Fi market. Boingo Wireless is using open Wi-Fi 6E access points in select deployments. The open APs and software come out of the Telecom Infra Project or TIP. TIP was originally founded by Facebook and it's driving open disaggregated designs for telecom networking hardware and software. <laughs> As you said there, TIP has basically been working on helping, helping telcos to help themselves a little bit. Yeah, a little uh, bit. By showing them a way to use Whitebox instead of, and to thus lower the cost of uh, building out bandwidth. And particularly they've been focused not on, not just on the hardware part, but more increasingly uh, in the Open Compute Foundation as well, we're seeing the software that operates them become a big issue. And so the purpose of this is to sort of single out that Boingo is using the TIP product to actually run public hotspots, I think in this case. What's notable here is that Boingo runs a service. It's not uh, running a wireless product. Like when you're an enterprise, you buy the wireless and then you own it. What Boingo sells is a service to customers and how it works, it doesn't really matter. They were obviously at one point doing planes and yep. then they mm -hmm. moved into public Wi-Fi for uh, councils airports and cities public and ventures. airports and yeah. things like that. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, like some of the worst Wi-Fi crimes that have been ever committed were done in airports. But um, I think it's interesting that the telecom infrastructure project has had a win here in the sense that Boingo is probably able to dramatically drop the cost of the hardware of the APs and improve its ownership cycle and get more Wi-Fi out there, which is obviously meeting the goal of what uh, Facebook wanted. They just want more people to have access to the internet so that more people can Facebook. And that's probably a win for them. Yeah, it makes great sense for Boingo because they're operating a network. If they can get gear from 
X, Y, and Z vendors uh, that mm -hmm. cuts their costs, allows them to do a little bit of competitive bargaining, that kind of thing, uh, mm -hmm. so that disaggregated white box model works for them. I don't know that Wyland vendors uh, targeting the enterprise would be psyched about this because wireless LAN is one of those last holdouts with that vendor integrated hardware and software. Because um, yeah. if you get the customer to buy your APs, they're probably also buying your controller, they're buying your AAA stuff, they're buying some NAC, maybe some AI Happy ops on top. Yeah. yeah, all that mm. stuff. So I don't anticipate this coming to the enterprise anytime soon. No, but it's significant in the fact that, you know, somebody's using the the white box for this sort of service, which I mm -hmm. thought was noteworthy. Moving on, the Open Compute Project, which uh, sort of like TIP, also drives open source software and open hardware designs. This one focused on data centers. They're adding sustainability as a top-level project and priority for the organization. Uh, I didn't see a specific definition of what OCP means by sustainability, but there is language around things like carbon reduction, increasing thermal management efficiency, and promoting reusability. Yeah, so I wanted to flag this because we were talking about power efficiency up the top, but we already yep. sort of talked about it when we were discussing the new Cisco Nexus switches. But... Uh, so I sort of preluded to the fact that power consumption is on a path to use a significant amount of all power generation in the world. And we're seeing lots of fluctuations in the cost of electricity, uh, you know, and power generation generally. Now that's, could be a short-term thing, could be a long-term thing. It's not at all clear. Um, and also the fact is that for a lot of what we do, we currently just throw more hardware at the problem and we end up just consuming more power. And so even though we've seen infrastructure get smaller and faster, it generally just consumes more power at the end of the day because we just keep using faster and faster and more and more computers to do a particular thing. So what the OCP is signaling is beyond um, sustainability efforts in the cooling environment, so thermal management, immersion, cold plate, heat reuse. So, you know, tapping the heat generated in a data center to warm a pool has been very popular. And in some places mm -hmm. they even use it to um, heat buildings and things like that. I think mm -hmm. that's still very difficult to do today, realistically, because you can't move the heat very far away from the data center. Great. Quite often the data centers are somewhere where there's just no point. Uh, but what they're also saying here is they're starting to design for circularity. And the idea there is that firmware needs to be reused to improve long-term sustainability. So you shouldn't have to throw away a device just because the firmware gets to a new version that requires the that obsolete a hardware platform. Mm -hmm. And they're also talking about um, designing for circularity to enable servers to be repurposed and ultimately enable component and material recovery when decommissioned. So there's a whole uh, cycle there that they're talking about trying to get into the design process saying, well, when this is finished, so we're trying to recover not only precious metals but rare earth elements that are needed for the next generation of technologies. So mm -hmm. it's a much more comprehensive. The question, the challenge here is that this is a bit wafty. Right? It's like, oh, like a lot of climate stuff, it's like you, you get lost. And so hopefully they can find some way to crystallize this. But it has to be said that uh, the these projects, the Open Compute Project, did revolutionize a lot of cooling designs. And we saw the end of chillers for a lot of data centers and the open air, you know, passing it through, just filtering for dust and then passing ambient atmosphere through instead of chilling it to send it in and things like that. Yeah. A couple of things you had mentioned earlier, this uh, statistic from the OCP data centers using 1% to 1.5% of worldwide power in 2020. That's expected to grow to 3% to 13% of worldwide power uh, generation by 2030. So obviously that's a significant cost for those data centers. So, you know, these kinds of environment, social or governance or ESG initiatives uh, can, mm -hmm. as we alluded to earlier, just be window dressing. But given that there are clear direct costs to data center operators around power, cooling, e-waste and so on, uh, sustainability efforts that can drive down those costs may actually have legs. So if OCP does this right, I think they can actually have an impact here. 
Yeah, a lot of the stuff that Open Compute or OCP does, does it tend to fly off in odd directions? Uh, it tends to lead to some convergence by the, the the server makers. So we've seen Dell, HP, and Cisco take on board mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. aspects of these OCP projects that meet their own internal goals. So it's not like anything is really wasted at OCP to that extent. Not everything gets much traction, but some of it does. Right. Uh, what I Again, what I like is that sustainability efforts here have a direct impact on their consumers' costs. So there is, I think, mm-hmm. an incentive among OCP and then the device manufacturers to actually make it happen. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, sticking with Open Compute Project, uh, community members in the OCP have introduced a framework called Calyptra for hardware root of trust. Calyptra's, quote, reusable silicon level IP block for integration into future SOCs such as CPUs, GPUs, and SSDs, end quote. Yeah, so the hardware root of trust is key. Uh, the idea here is that when you buy a module and fit it into a server, it should be flagged as known from a from a trusted source and that it hasn't been tampered with, which is not dissimilar to what happens in military uh, technical technology uh, and you can't reverse engineer it. And the challenge up until now is where does the root of trust come from? It needs a cooperative effort. And in this case, uh, AMD, Google and Microsoft has put together a, a quite a substantial story Although the press release mentions NVIDIA, I'll note that there's no NVIDIA person who's been contributing to the current version of the standard. Maybe NVIDIA joined in at the last minute, uh, which would be a win because you really need them to come in uh, and participate, especially with their AI chips and and so forth and their ARM licensing, ARM licensed CPU cores. So it's going to be important, I think. And the idea here is that there would be a consistent approach to a root of trust instead of what we have today, which is a piecemeal all over the place type of thing. And if you can define a standard, as it says, a, re- a silicon level IP block, that's an um, intellectual property block, right, that goes into a chip, especially socks. Um, so it becomes part of other chips. You just put this piece of uh, intellectual property in to standard design and there's a common root of trust and they define all the APIs and the standards and everything to go around it. So. Yeah, links in the show notes if you want to see more details. Uh, We will wrap up with a little bit of space networking. Uh, Starlink is targeting the aviation market with a satellite internet service designed to provide airline passengers with high-speed internet, including the ability to play online games and take video calls while in flight. It's called Starlink Aviation, and airlines can reserve an order now to get equipment delivered in 2023. Yeah, at a one-time hardware cost of $150,000 and a $12,500 to $25,000 a month, Drew, uh, my guess is <laughs> not going to be widely used. Probably they're very much targeting the commercial airlines, it feels like to me. And they have a low-profile antenna, which electronically focuses. So it ha- remember, like all Starlink, it has to focus on a overhead. But they're claiming 350 megabits per second, which is significantly faster than what they have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is something for people who want to access internet while in the air, which sounds horrifying, but okay. <laughs> I mean, I could, it sounds steep up front, but it's probably piddling compared to the other costs of operating an airplane. And if you can keep passengers uh, quiet and happy on their devices while in flight, I think that's probably Mm -hmm. worth it to the aviation industry. But for me as a passenger, enhanced connectivity in the air is not a win. Uh, I feel like the plane is the absolute worst place in the world to try to get work done. Uh, Now you'll have no excuses not (laughs) to be productive and always available on that six hour flight. And now guess what? You can be in that middle seat between two folks having video calls yelling at their laptops. Yes, I do not want to be on a plane while somebody is zooming in the chair next to you, right? (laughs) Oh boy. Or voice calling. Sounds awful. (laughs) There's just some problems there. There But that doesn't mean that there aren't 
you know, people in business class or first class for whom that might be a feature. So that, that might be a win. And that might be a win, I guess. I don't know. We'll see. Just as so long as it's not, you know, in economy where I'm likely to travel, that'll be fine. But, you know, <laughs> exactly. if you need data, fine. If you want a VPN into work, fine. But no Zoom calls, dude. You're going to get an elbow in the in, in the nether. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that uh, does wrap up our news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversations with Open Gear. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk about how to use out of band management for daily networking tasks and not just when there's a problem or crisis. Our sponsor is Open Gear, and we're joined by Ramtin Rampour, solutions architect, to talk about use cases including zero touch provisioning, configuration, and more. Uh, Ramtin, welcome to the podcast. And you just give our listeners a quick reminder of what Open Gear does. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Drew. Uh, OpenGear is a resilience platform which provides you secure access to your network on day one for provisioning, day to day for management, and for your worst day when the network goes down. Our goal is to bring value and impacts that exceeds disaster recovery or insurance policy. Okay, so you're saying you can use OpenGear, of course, on those bad days when you need that out-of-band management capability, but there's also things you can use the product for day-to-day for regular networking tasks. Absolutely. We continue finding that out-of-band is super handy to have. Uh, your console connection is, is super handy to have for, for your bad days, but it is important to have day-to-day connectivity for your regular network management tasks, right? So if you want to go change an IP on your switch or on your router, if you want to take a look at some firewall rules, you can do all of that over a console connection just to ensure that your change uh, is taking place correctly and you don't lose connectivity at the time of the change management. And you can do that because you've got that connectivity right there already. It's already set up and ready to go. Exactly. You have a full console connection. You can take a look at your debug logs. Uh, you can change your bot rate even if you want from 9600 to something a little bit faster. But our goal is to ensure that you have full connectivity uh, for your day one so you can fully provision your devices, right? So when somebody uh, slaps in a brand new switch or router, you want to be able to configure that as easy as possible. And we provide you that console connection. But then at the same time, six months from then, if you want to change an IP address, it's better uh, when you go into maintenance mode to do everything through console so you can ensure that even if you have a typo in your configuration, you don't lose access and you can quickly recover and make the changes you need to. Got it. Okay, so one of the things I teased in the introduction is that zero touch provision. Can you talk about using OpenGear uh, and the console for that zero touch provisioning? Absolutely. So uh, our console servers have Docker installed inside of them. So there's a lot of cool things that you can do. And one of them is using the product as a ZTP server. So essentially what you're doing is you're setting up a Docker container with DHCP and a Docker container with uh, HTTP or TFTP, whatever your file transfer methodology is preferred. Mm-hmm. And the, the essential goal here is that you plug in your network equipment into the open gear via its network port and you can get a DHCP IP, it's full configuration, uh, the device's firmware, uh, all of that is configurable through the OpenGear product. So it's again, no longer just your uh, insurance policy for when things go wrong, but it can be something that you can configure ahead of time, ship it to a site and you plug in an entire rack and everything automatically gets configured without you ever having to touch another network device. 
Okay, and can th- this is something I can also do remotely, meaning maybe I need somebody on site to plug things in, but they don't necessarily have to be able to configure the devices. I can do that remotely. Yeah, absolutely. So what we can do is we can uh, quickly talk about Lighthouse, which is our centralized manager, right? So that's where we aggregate all of our serial ports, all of our console servers. And uh, the best way to do this is essentially you configure the open gear very, very minimally, right? So one or two configuration lines, just so it can talk to the centralized manager. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, you have this software in the cloud or on-prem, whatever you would like to deploy it, where you can have access to all of your equipment. And what I mean by that is all of your open gear devices, as well as all of the devices behind the open gear, right? Your switches, your routers, your firewalls. And since you have access, you can uh, essentially configure the open gear with Docker containers, with TFTP servers, whatever you would like to ensure that you can ZTP the rest of the network. Now, why would I necessarily want to use a Docker container for this use case? Absolutely. So we currently don't have a DHCP server, but what we find what we found out is that Docker containers and Docker in general is pretty flexible for tools uh, like this. So what you can do is you can essentially create this offline Docker installer that you can push down from Lighthouse to all of your nodes. And within a matter of minutes, you have a full standing ZTP server without having to individually configure devices, right? So everything can be centralized. And the other benefit is once you're done with the Docker container, you can easily turn it off and turn it back on for where you need to with a couple of simple commands. Zero touch provisioning is a unique situation for certain types of customers, particularly people who've got a lot of stuff to provision. But that idea of turning the Docker on when you know you're going to provision and then turning it off is actually a security feature that is not, you know, if it was inside of your, of open gear as some sort of, you know, standard thing, it becomes a weakness and you could always just script it so that the, the Docker container spawns and up it comes, does what it needs to and then shut down. But one of the other things I've seen people do is have Docker containers with DNS and DHCP. So in the event of a failure of a remote site, those containers actually contain all the tools you need to do troubleshooting. They're not there. They're not operational in normal situations, but you can come into the open gear and then have a standard Docker container of troubleshooting tools as well. Uh, that's absolutely correct. And a great example of that is, uh, you know, a simple Docker container that has iperf running on it, just so you yep. can check your network connectivity, your bu- uh-huh. your speed, um, and making sure that your network is function function as expected. And your Docker has routing or connectivity that's total separate from the out-of-band features that OpenGear gives you. You can come in over a 5G, 4G, 3G backdoor type thing that is only active when it needs to be active. So again, low security profile, Connect, spawn the Docker container, and then you've got your full troubleshooting suite ready to go. As you say, iperf, ping, trace pings, you know, smoke pings, whatever it is that you're going to use, yep. or maybe even run like what in, what we are seeing in a lot of places these days is actually running agents and having off uh, cloud-hosted uh, digital experience monitoring. You could run those in this box and start to do, again, a, a testing platform like that. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the one of the more popular agents nowadays is Thousand Eyes, uh, which mm. we can easily deploy with in a matter of clicks. A couple mm-hmm. of commands that you run into our products, and now you have a Thousand Eye agent uh, running on the Open Gear. We actually POC huh. that, and we have a couple of customers that currently use it, mm. and they have full uh, monitoring of their network status uh, all through the Thousand Eye agent to mm. their portal. So coming back to what you were saying about zero-touch provisioning or ZTP, do you see what I did there, Drew? I actually said it American-style Z. 
You're starting to rub off. That's right. Oh, no, you're turning American. Don't do that. Now, one of the things that I like about uh, the open gear, this idea of the Docker, is that you can actually see all of the log messages, right? You don't. You can capture the boot cycle. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, you can do that through uh, your console port. And the really cool thing is uh, on Lighthouse, you can push everything upstream to the centralized manager to Lighthouse, which means that all of your console ports, all of your log messages from everything behind the open gear, your switches, your routers can all be forwarded to Lighthouse to a single location where you can quickly monitor if something goes down, you can click on a port log and look and see exactly what could have happened to, to cause that network to go down. And I use that exact same channel to jump back into the serial port and troubleshoot and fix whatever that may have gone wrong. So you've also got use cases around SD-WAN and OpenGear. Can you talk about what customers are doing there? Absolutely. So with SD-WAN, just like any other network, you have a uh, site where it's set up for resiliency. It's set up with multiple hardware devices. And you have something like an SD-WAN physical equipment there that's connected to a broadband, which basically Mm -hmm. talks to the cloud. So even though SD-WAN is a... uh, redundant and resilient platform, usually you still have a bunch of network equipment behind it that right. need managing. Right. And on top of that, even uh, at, at best case scenario, there are times where you lose connectivity, you lose network connectivity to the cloud uh, through the SD-WAN device. So there's a couple different solutions that we provide that focus on resiliency that also apply to SD-WAN. Uh, one of them is IP pass-through. So we call that fail to cellular. And this uh, fail to cellular functionality essentially provides its internal IP address to the downstream router or to the to the SD-WAN device, which ensures that you have a secondary or tertiary broadband connection. And it's all happening over our cellular product, but we're just uh, acting as another hop. Uh, basically, the IP address is assigned to the downstream device and they can now continue using it as if uh, they, they own that particular mm. uh, broadband segment. So, And that also, in the data center context, people do use the open gear as a puppet agent. If you're using an agent-based provisioning technology where you need an agent to work on your behalf, a lot of people use the open gear as that key point, sometimes even for Ansible as well. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So uh, mm-hmm. just one more point about the SD-WAN connection is we have uh, a lot of customers that have, you know, coffee shops, uh, remote sites, uh, edge locations where they have credit card machines, they have other tools that they need to have up at all times. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they're they're losing value and they're losing money every day. Mm-hmm. So uh, what happens is utilizing that IP pass-through functionality, they're finding that they're able to continue running their credit card machine even when the broadband connection goes down. And at the same time, you can use that exact same channel to access the open gear and access all your devices behind the open gear to troubleshoot the problem. And sometimes the problem is not something that you can fix, right? Sometimes a broadband connection has gone down and you just got to wait 30 minutes for it to come back up. And we give you that <laughs> internet connection, right? For that 30 minutes, yeah, yeah. you're not sitting there saying, oh, we can't run credit card machines. And- yeah. So business doesn't have to come to a screeching halt just because that's, that's our SD-WAN router's down. So, Ramtin, you had mentioned Lighthouse earlier, centralized management. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this works? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as we mentioned, Lighthouse is essentially a centralized manager software, right, that gives you portal to all of your out-of-band network. Uh, this includes all of your open gear devices, as well as devices behind your open gear, your switches, routers, firewalls, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, the really cool thing is that the product um, is built in a resilient manner, meaning that you can have multiple instances of it for recovery and redundancy purposes. 
Uh, it's scalable. We've tested to well over 5,000 open gear devices enrolled. Uh-huh. Um, and just as a reminder, you know, our, our highest density is 96 port, meaning that 5,000 times 96 ports is how many network <laughs> equipment devices. <laughs> that seems can, improbable at that point, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But, you, but you can't have that many devices accessible all through a single portal. And is Lighthouse available in the cloud or is this software that I'm running on-prem somewhere? Um, it's it's a software that you can deploy either on the cloud or uh, on-prem. We'll leave that up to you. Some customers have uh, Lighthouse deployed internally for security purposes and some have it in uh, in the cloud for redundancy or for ease of access, right? It gives you yeah. access quickly. You can jump in. It's easier to recover and uh bring back up should something go down. I should note that you actually have a whole range of appliances here. You have 3G, 4G terminals, which have got a few serial ports on them. Some of them have got RS-422 type technology. Others have a range of other connectivity options. It's not just 96 ports. It's actually a whole range of hardware that you could choose, right? Yeah, absolutely. We, we try to uh, be, be very, very flexible for our customers. Uh, so mm-hmm. we have products that have LTE uh, modules embedded. We have products without the LTE module. So basically any of our products can be with or without LTE module. Uh, Mm. We have products with high ethernet density. So we have one, for example, with 24 serial ports and 24 ethernet. So that's a great example of how you can Mm. utilize the uh, Docker ZTP setup, right? So you have 24 ethernet port and manage your management LAN through IP plus the serial port. And we have uh, smaller products that have uh, all the way down to four serial ports for your edge location. So we're, we're pretty flexible on that. Um, I I'm willing to bet that any type of site that a customer has, we have a product that, that fits the bill. Yeah. I wanted to mention that because the lighthouse management becomes more critical when you have a large number of devices or when you have diverse in number of devices, trying to keep track of them all and asset manage them all and keep all the code up to date. It does work a lot better if the vendor's providing me with an administration platform that's going to do the updates. I mean, it's all fun and fun and games playing, you know, writing an Ansible script to patch them, but it's a lot easier if you're using someone else's tools sometimes. I mean, I'm thinking specifically about that coffee shop or retail environment where I've got lots of open gear mm. equipment in lots of different places I would want centralized management. Exactly. And and the benefit of the centralized management is not just for a portal to access things. Um, it also, as you mentioned, gives you the functionality to upgrade all, the, all of your open gear devices. It gives you the mm. ability to uh, run multiple scripts, whether it's manually or during the enrollments as they're connecting to Lighthouse. And both Lighthouse and all of our console servers are um, API first, which mm-hmm. means that you have an API endpoint to make any configuration changes that you would like instead of having to, you know, go to the CLI or UI. So we give you that. And so does uh, Lighthouse as well. So I can write my Python and Ansible against Lighthouse and let you do the upgrade the code. I could just write an Ansible script that tells Lighthouse to upgrade the firmware (laughs) or, you know, make this change or spawn the Docker instance and let Lighthouse take care of that stuff. Exactly, exactly. We try to make it as easy as possible. So for all the CLI folks that, you know, love love being inside the CLI, there's a, you know, shell uh, that you can go into and make modifications. For the UI folks, we have a fully embedded UI, and then obviously uh, an API endpoint for anybody who wants to do some automation. So you're right up to date on all the modern automation and scripting playbooks, et cetera. Absolutely. All right, well, that does uh, wrap up our time. We have uh, Ramtin, if folks want to find out more about Open Gear and all the things we talked about, where should they go? Uh, most certainly, it's been a pleasure. And if you want to see a demo, you can reach out to us at sales at opengear.com. 
Uh, thanks, Ramten, for being with us, and thanks to Open Gear for being a sponsor. And thanks to you for being a listener. If you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packapushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packapushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>